tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. Good morning, Neighborhood Church. I'm glad you took the time to be with us on this last Sunday of February. Uh, If this happens to be your first time with us, either in person or, or online, I just want to say it's an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning, and uh, we're happy you're our guest, and we want to give you a warm welcome in the name of Jesus. My name's Steve. I'm one of the now twice recycled former elders here at Neighborhood Church. Pastor Mike uh, is not here with us this weekend. He and his wife, Christy, are in Nashville, Tennessee, y'all. So they're visiting Mark and Shannon Ryan, whom you all know and love, so we wish them well. Coincidentally, by the way, my wife and I just got back from Nashville, Tennessee three weeks ago. Our uh, youngest daughter, Megan, and son-in-law live outside Columbia, and they just had their fourth uh, child, little Riker Charles, our 13th grandchild. Yeah, Proverbs 17.6 says, grandchildren are the crown of the elderly. So there is no denying it, I am old. Last week we were picking up two of our grandsons who live here in uh, Cyprus. Uh, They go to Grace Christian School and Levi, who is in the third grade, uh, they must be studying history or something because I I could see the wheels turning. He was thinking, pondering something and he turned to me and he said, Papa, you were alive in the Great Depression, right? He just missed it by a couple decades is all. (laughs) At least he didn't say the Civil War, right? Yeah. But my wife and I are certainly enjoying our crowns. They are a wonderful blessing. We are in a uh, series, as Sean mentioned, uh, called Stepping Out. We're taking a survey through the book of Acts. And we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning, so feel free to turn there or scroll or swipe, however you follow along. There's a basic outline in the worship folder. We also have a study guide weekly for those who want to go deeper. Pastor Mike's got a blog. We do a Revive podcast every week. All the links to those additional resources are on our website, www.neighborhoodchurch.com. So if you want to use those, but let's bow our hearts for a moment and ask the Lord to enlighten us as we look into his word. Will you pray with me? Lord, we bow our hearts, and we want to hear from you. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds and guides us to all knowledge and understanding. Thank you for revealing to us who you are in your word. Your word is truth. We want to hear from you this morning, Lord. You are the God who saves. You make all things new. You are the only one who can transform our hearts and minds. We know your word is alive and active, And as we peer into it this morning, speak truth to us. Affect us, Lord, so that we might leave here knowing confidently that we heard from the living God. Do that for your glory and our blessing, please, Lord. Your name, amen. How many of you are familiar with the uh, He Gets Us campaign? Uh, Its stated goal is to move beyond the mess of our current, current cultural moment to a place where everyone is invited to rediscover the story of Jesus. That's what it says on their website. Uh, Their website points out that Jesus didn't let, you know, pro this or anti that opinions 
prohibit him from seeing the value in all people. And their hope, they say, is to share his life and message in new ways while inviting everyone to explore his teachings so we can follow the example of his confounding, unconditional love. Because, as they close their commercials, he gets us, all of us. Have you seen any of the commercials? Yeah, the the ads started showing up a couple years ago on billboards and TV commercials, and the last couple of years, they've been even in the Super Bowl. Did did we watch the Super Bowl two weeks ago? Yeah, how many of you watched it for the game? How many of you watched it for the commercials? People do that. The halftime show? How many of you just wanted to see how many times Taylor Swift got shown on the Jumbotron? How many of you don't care? Um, For those of you who tuned in, did you happen to catch the He Gets Us commercials? There were two of them, uh, one of which people found, frankly, a bit provocative. The commercial uh, featured images of unlikely pairings in various settings, with one person washing another person's feet. Uh, Two women on opposite sides of a political protest, police officer and a young black man, a pro-life advocate washing the feet of a young woman outside a family planning clinic, an an oil worker and an environmental protester, a suburban white woman washing the feet of a migrant just getting off the bus in her neighborhood, and so on. And and it appeared they were deliberately trying to land on a number of the hot-button issues in our culture today that tend to evoke passionate expression on both sides of the aisle. And it ended with the tagline, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. And, not surprisingly, it generated a fair amount of controversy on social media because everybody's got an opinion, right? Some people thought it was a beautiful picture of humility and unconditional love. Others argued, no, love is speaking truth and implying every cultural agreement. A disagreement is hateful, is just lazy. You can love someone and still passionately disagree with what they're doing. Others thought it was too vague and reduced Jesus to just someone who was trying to set a good example. Some thought it was too woke, and and on and on and on it went. The promoters of the campaign said they welcomed the discussion and acknowledged that images of foot washing might feel a little strange to us in our culture, but they hoped to stimulate reflection about who is my neighbor. Let's, Let's talk about Jesus, let's engage. And into the fray waited a pastor named Jamie Brambeck out of uh, Northern Ireland. And um, he was in East Belfast, and and he thought the ad, while well-intentioned, really didn't convey, in his mind, the, the heart of the gospel message. So he came up with his own ad. And here was his take. Check it out. Ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart. I, I will 
Such were some of us. I think that is what is at the heart of the gospel. As Romans 1.16 declares, it is the power of God for salvation on display in a changed life. And, and those images were not of people who were just modifying their behavior. Those were images of people who had found a whole new identity, an entirely new life, in Christ, former witch, former jihadist, former KKK leader, former abortionist, drug addict, gangbanger, porn star, former, that was the operative word. And who are they now, you ask? It's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls a new creation, being in Christ. It's not just a different version of the same old thing. It's what Jesus called being born again in John chapter three. The good news is that you can go from being one thing, separated from a holy God, dead in your trespasses and sins, to being treated and restored and made alive forever in Christ, according to Ephesians 2.5. Everybody today is talking about being inclusive. Have you noticed that? Um, you know, it's the flavor of the month. But if you think about it, the gospel is the most inclusive thing there is. Consider what Romans 3.23 says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. You can't get any more inclusive than that. All means all, and that's all all means. That includes me, that includes you, it even includes Pastor Mike. I can say that because he's not here. The problem of sin is all-inclusive, and so is God's solution. John 3.16, for God so loved the what? World. You can't get any more inclusive than that. That's me, that's you, every single person in this room. It says he gave his only son that whoever, whoever, completely inclusive, and then it says believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Oops, that sounds a little exclusive. There is one mediator between God and man, one mediator who can reconcile us with God and that is Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was Peter's message in Acts chapter four, verse 12. The gospel is both 
inclusive and exclusive at the same time, and you can't have one without the other. We have to take the whole counsel of God. I've said this before, and, and I'm not being theological here, this is just me talking, but I find it interesting that everywhere in the scripture you find the word of God compared to a weapon, the imagery is always a two-edged sword, a double-edged sword, two edges, both equally sharp, two sides of one blade. Man has free moral agency inside the sovereignty of God. Jesus Christ is both son of God and son of man. A coalescence of contrarieties, according to one Scottish theologian. And the power of the gospel, that kind of transformational life change that is made possible in Jesus Christ, from former witch to child of God, is, is not about making resolutions or turning over a new leaf. Because you can modify your behavior somewhat if you're sufficiently motivated, right? You can go on a diet, you can quit smoking. Do people still do that? You know, you can do any number of things, but that won't make you a new creature. That doesn't give you a new heart or a new mind or, or turn everything right side up so that you see the world and everything in it, including yourself, through a completely different perspective. Temporary behavior modification is not real life change. I'll prove it to you. Remember, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so ago, when they started putting you know, those red light cameras at all the major intersections so that if you went through on a red light, the strobes would flash, and a couple weeks later, you'd get a ticket in the mail with your picture, and they were always the worst pictures too. My mouth would be open, or you know, something like that. I'll bet it didn't take you long to figure out where all the red light camera intersections were. And you modified your behavior. It didn't make you a new creature. It didn't change, I was still the same lousy, aggressive driver I'd always been. But if I was coming up to Valley View and Chapman or Los Alamitos and Catella on a yellow light, I didn't push the envelope. My wife is over there thinking, I never got one of those tickets. Yeah, yeah, well the point is temporary behavior modification is not real life change. It's a new work of the Spirit of God. It is not our efforts to change that make us a new creature. It is God's masterpiece, his workmanship, according to Ephesians 2.10. He does the creating in Christ it is a miraculous work of God that transforms us from the, through the Holy Spirit and brings about this new life. And it begins when we surrender our will and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust his work on the cross in dying for our sins. That's when God begins his masterpiece in you and me. And that's what happens to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. He's known at this point in the story by his Jewish name, Saul of Tarsus. Paul was his Roman name. And we see him breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus in verse one. So thoroughly convinced is he that these claims about Jesus Christ being the son of God are just a pack of lies. 
This nonsense about Jesus having been risen from the dead is such a dangerous heresy in his mind that he is ravaging the church, according to verse 3 of chapter 8. Going house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison and casting his vote for them to be executed. He knew what the Christians believed. He'd interrogated enough of them trying to get them to renounce Christ through beatings, threats of death. He knew what they believed, and he dismissed it, rejected it, until he is confronted by the Lord himself, by the truth, by the word, that word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, according to John chapter 1. And everything changes he will take on a whole new identity in Christ. He will write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, that he was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor, formerly a violent oppressor, the chief sinner, but he was shown mercy and saved by Jesus. He says there that he is the poster child for God's perfect patience. He says, you can't get any worse than I was, yet God saved me so he can save anyone. We learned last week that he was struck blind and spent three days without sight, according to verses eight and nine. Close your eyes for a second. Keep them closed. Just shut out all visual stimuli for just a minute. What do you imagine was going through Saul's mind as he sat there alone in the dark? Was the testimony and the execution of Stephen back in chapter 7 playing like a loop over and over in his mind? Was it all the Old Testament passages about the Messiah he had memorized, all those pieces of the puzzle coming together? Psalm 22, Isaiah 7, uh, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2. Or was it the images of all the doors he kicked in and the men and women he had dragged away to be imprisoned and executed? Maybe all of the above. You can open your eyes. I imagine, though, that he was so in shock, the Lord had to give him that time to let his mind try to catch up and process what was happening. Think about it. I mean, lots of people once hostile to Jesus have come to believe. Atheists, witches, racists, drug dealers, porn stars, abortionists, even some lawyers. But it's usually a process that unfolds over time. You know, seeds are planted, they grow. There is no indication that Saul was the least bit receptive to the message of Jesus before this experience. To the contrary, he is carrying in his hand arrest warrants for the Christians in Damascus. This was like, boom! And everything he thought he knew is turned upside down in an instant. You know, I, I really do think God pursues the outlaws. I think there's a special place in his heart because you know, they're the ones willing to push boundaries. They're the ones willing to go all in, right? They're extreme worshipers. They're just worshiping the wrong thing. And you got to get them turned. 
Paul's sight is restored when he is visited by Ananias, one of the leaders in the church in Damascus. And we pick up the story in the second half of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? He proclaims Jesus immediately. The fruit of repentance was visible in Paul's life right away. And all who heard him were astonished, amazed. They they cannot believe that this is the same one who was arresting people for preaching and believing what he is now preaching and believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They did not understand just how powerfully Jesus could change a life. The blasphemer and hater of all things Christian becomes the preacher and proclaimer of all things Christ. The hands that held those arrest warrants for the blood of believers now will write love letters to the churches around the world that those hands have helped plant. Paul is the one who years later will write that statement in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul lived the reality of that verse long before he wrote it. This is a story of a conversion so extreme the whole world is affected. Paul's conversion is hugely significant to you and me as Gentile believers. He will go on to write 13 letters, be the most widely read human author of the entire Bible. Our theology, our understanding of salvation, our knowledge of faith and of grace and of new life in Christ is informed more by Paul's writings than anything else. His magnum opus, the book of Romans, And the question that he asked back in verse five, who are you, Lord, will become the singular focus of his life from here on out. According to Philippians 3.8, he counts everything as loss in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He says he gladly gives up everything in order to know him because he understands the more he knows about Christ, the more he will discover the true reality of who he is now. And in verse 15 of Colossians 3, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Proverbs 9, 9, and 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a healthy respect for who God is and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The more we know about Jesus, the more we discover about ourselves because we are in Christ. The more we learn about him, 
the more clearly we see the blueprint of what we are to be and how we are being transformed, what we are becoming in his image. That's Romans 8.29. Who are you, Lord? That's what I want to know. The world keeps telling us that the most important question we should ask is, who am I? There is a growing fixation on the self that seems to permeate every aspect of our culture. That is an inward focus that takes us dangerously down the road past self-acceptance to self-worship. Worship of the creature rather than the creator, which Paul warns us about in Romans chapter one, where pride becomes the new virtue. And the danger there is the threat to immunize us against a knowledge of our own sinfulness and need for a savior. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the reality is that we are all broken and need a savior. Charles Spurgeon once said, you shouldn't really worry about what other people are thinking of you. You're way worse than they imagine. (laughs) But we become whole in Christ. That is our identity. And it becomes the prolific topic of Paul's letters. Consider some of the things the Apostle Paul will write about this new identity in Christ. You are complete in Christ. And he, he, the one in whom you are complete, is the head of all principalities and powers. Colossians 2.10. You have been made alive to God in Christ. Ephesians 2.5 and Romans 6.11. You are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. You are a joint heir of the Father in Christ, Romans 8.17. You are raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places, present tense, Ephesians 2.6, Colossians 2.12. You have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, 1 Peter 2.3. You are free from condemnation and you cannot be accused. Romans 1, Romans 8, 1, and verses 32 to 34. You have everlasting life, John 5, 24. Cannot be separated from God, and God will complete the good work in you that he has begun, Philippians 1, 6. The reality of your salvation, the truth of who you are, is outside of your subjective experience. Your identity has nothing to do with your lived experience. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross over 2,000 years ago. That is an objective reality that exists independent of your own thoughts and experiences. It remains true no matter how you feel about it. We are in Christ. That is not just our status, however. That is also our calling. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He's growing. He's increasing in strength. And so should we. Being in Christ is not just your identity, it's your purpose. 
Man was made in the image of God. That image was defaced by sin. That image is fully restored in Christ, Colossians 1.15, and we are to put on that new self, Colossians 3.10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Salvation happens in an instant. You become a new creation the moment you confess Jesus Christ as your savior and Lord and submit your will to go his way, but it takes a lifetime to plumb the depths of what that really means. Yes, we are in Christ, but we need to grow into the reality of what we already are. Does that make sense? This may not be the best illustration, but um, my wife and I celebrated our 45th anniversary last November. Now you'll, yeah, give her a hand, she deserves it. Now, there's a couple of things you'll notice about that picture right away. Number one, my wife looks like she's about 12, right? And number two, check out the hair on that dude, huh? Holy cow. You know, truthfully, my wife and I were just as married right there than we are today. We are not married any more today than we were November 25th, 1978. But believe me when I tell you, we have grown into the reality of what it means to be married, what it means to be husband and wife in ways I could not even have begun to understand when that picture was taken. We need to grow into the reality of who we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glory is simply the display of what God is like. It's a way of seeing him without actually seeing him. Like what we see in the heavens. Psalm 19. Did any of you see the mountains this morning? The snow? Did any of you see the moon last night? God's glory is being declared. They declare and so should we. We are to be image bearers, getting brighter and brighter as we commune with him and follow him through his word in prayer and fellowship with our fellow believers. We are supposed to keep growing, not plateau not stagnate, because we're, we're prone, let's be honest, to reach a place of contentment where we think, hey, I'm saved, you know, I know the essentials, I'm no longer vulnerable to the cults who come knocking on my door, and uh, you know, I think I got my vices pretty much under control, so we say, hey, good enough, time to coast. The Lord does not want that for us. Jesus says we are to abide in him. What does it mean to abide? Well, you abide in your abode, right? It's where you live, where you center your life, your thoughts, where you draw your strength. As long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you're ripe, you're rotting. We need to keep increasing in strength. Coming to faith in Christ gives you a new identity, It gives you a new purpose for your life. It gives you a new power to go along with it. Pastor Mike talked about the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago. 
but it also gives you a new family. And there are challenges that come along with that as well. Relationships change. They did for Paul. The people Saul sought to harm became the people he loved. The people he previously considered to, to be his community became his enemies. The hunter became the hunted. Beloved, anytime you bring people together from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different ages, different cultures, different ways of thinking and doing things, stuff happens. There will be challenges. There certainly were for Paul. We see in verse 26, the, the believers in Jerusalem didn't want to have anything to do with him. They were afraid of him, just like Ananias in the earlier part of the chapter, Mike talked about processing through your fears with God in the sermon last week. We know from Galatians 1.18, it's been about three years since his conversion. He was first in Damascus, then he goes to Arabia, then back to Damascus and continues to preach to the Jews until things get so bad they wanna kill him and he has to skip town, gets lowered in a basket outside the wall. That's verses 23 to 25, and, and we see it again in verses 29 to 30 when he's arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, who, by the way, were the ones that Stephen was witnessing to when he was stoned. And so we now come full circle, and the Apostle Paul, the one at whom their coats were laid when Stephen was being executed, is now the one preaching the gospel. To them. I love how God works. This, by the way, will become the pattern for the rest of his life. Most of the rest of this book is about this guy, Paul. And we will see he's going to go places. He'll present Jesus. He always starts with the Jews because they've got precedent, you know, knowledge of the Old Testament. And as a Jew, he will speak to them in their synagogues. He'll, he'll point out to them that Jesus was the one of whom the prophet spoke would come. They'll dispute with him. He'll reason with them. Some will believe, but the ones who don't will begin to become abusive. They'll either try to kill him or they'll beat him, start a riot. He'll get thrown in prison. This guy will be a ball of scar tissue by the end of his life. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He'll go as far as he can with them, and when they become abusive, he will then take that same message to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will receive it. Churches are established. But when he gets to Jerusalem for the first time as a new believer in Christ, here in verse 26, the disciples don't want to have anything to do with him. They're afraid. Saul was the kind of guy that in the way he lived his life prior to his conversion, it was not easy for the Christians to accept him. And before we start thinking, oh, those people were really judgmental, how critical. Understand, we are looking at this with the benefit of hindsight. You know, we know that this guy is going to become an absolute force in the early church from Jerusalem to Rome and, and write most of the rest of the New Testament. But he hasn't written anything yet. Please consider, how would you be if it was your family that had been uprooted, beaten, put in chains? You saw your children dragged into the street, 
maybe even executed. Maybe some of your family members or friends are still in prison, and now this guy shows up wanting to go to church with you. How might you struggle? Would we have issues of forgiveness? Issues of trust? A problem believing that this guy is really sincere? I think we probably would. Beloved, our unity is constantly being tested. Politics will test it in an election year, you think? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says we are to pray for rulers and those in authority and not just the ones we like. I'm not suggesting politics are not important. They are, they are very, I mean, who our rulers are matter. But beloved, the next president of the United States will not be our redeemer. The next justice of the Supreme Court will not deliver us from evil. We are first and foremost residents of the kingdom and we serve the king. Issues in the culture will test us. Social justice, climate change, critical theory, how we respond to immigrants. Not everyone is going to agree. COVID tested us, didn't it? Masks, lockdowns, vaccines. I was on the elder board at that time. It was, it was not easy trying to navigate those issues and, and maintain the unity of the body. We need to examine ourselves all the time. Are we the kind of people who are prone to, to writing someone off or shunning them because of their perceived prejudices or their lifestyle or the things they've said or done that may have offended us? Or are we willing to do things out of love that may even risk bringing ridicule or disapproval from those even in our own community? Because I am sure there were some in that body in Jerusalem who said, or at least were thinking it if they didn't say it, Barnabas, have you lost your mind? What do you think you're doing? You are putting all of us at risk. Verse 27 says, and Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He vouched for him. And God was glorified. Oh, how God was glorified. It says in verse 31, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And here we are. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We don't have to agree on everything. There are a lot of things we can and should discuss and debate and reason with each other over. We can have those debates. I'll be right and you'll be wrong. See what I'm doing? But the question is, will we walk with one another in love through these issues? The world is going to judge the gospel of Jesus Christ by how we treat one another. Read John 17. John chapter 17 in your spare time this week, if you can. The last night 
of his life on this earth, Jesus was praying for the unity of the church, praying that we may all be one so that the world might believe in him. He was praying for us so that the world would believe in him. Think about that. May we encourage one another with these words. Will you pray with me? Father God, that prayer, make us one. That is our prayer today. Lord, we know that you told us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and secondly, to love our neighbor as ourselves. As you are in the Father and the Father is in you and we are in you, make us one with each other, Lord. The enemy is going to try to divide us. Don't let him do that. For your glory and our blessing. In the name of Yeshua, the Son of the living God, we pray, amen.